The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the new Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 12th. Today, how Cory Booker thinks Democrats can win on gun control. What happens next in the Jeffrey Epstein case? And the invasive species behind a viral tweet. After the mass shootings earlier this month in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio, one issue has become a major talking point for the Democratic presidential candidates. Gun control. You heard it all over Iowa this past weekend. Who in God's name needs a weapon that can handle 100 rounds? For God's sake. I want us to study what works. I want us to try. I want us to make change. Let's make sure that 20 years from now, 2019, is when we took the action to make sure that it never happened again. And a candidate who's put out one of the most wide-ranging proposals on gun reform is New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Hi, I'm Martine, the host of the podcast. Nice to meet you. I'm Corey, the subject. (laughs) Several months ago, Booker rolled out a 14-point gun violence prevention plan. And this past Thursday, when he was in Miami to speak to the National Association of Black Journalists, we caught up with him to talk about the realities of that plan. You have put out this pretty extensive plan on curbing gun violence with multiple different parts. But I want to talk to you about what that plan would look like in real life. And specifically when it comes to the idea of introducing some kind of universal gun licensing system all around the country. How would that actually play out? And how would that be something that you could actually enforce? Well, a couple of things. First of all, this is not a big leap in logic. We need a license to drive a car. We should have a license to purchase and own a firearm. It's been done before. States like Connecticut have gun licensing. And, and when they implemented the system, they actually had a 40% drop in shootings, 15% drop in suicides. But as uh, I was going back and forth with the governor of California, for example, he knows, and he spoke about this very passionately after Gilroy, that the patchwork of these laws that we have is what often causes the problem. The Gilroy shooter left the state to Nevada, where they have laxer gun laws, Mm -hmm. bought his weapons there, and then came into California to do the carnage. And so for me, it actually is much more logical to end this patchwork of laws and have comprehensive universal background checks and licensing. But how would that go over in a state that is more conservative, where people have owned guns for all their lives, and you're going to tell them that if they don't go and do this course and apply for this license, that they have to give up their guns? Well, uh, uh, first of all, it it went over in Connecticut and they did it. And well, I, I Connecticut think, is not Texas or is not a more conservative state. Well, again, the, the, the gun owners, I'm sure, in, in, in Connecticut are conservative. <laughs> I'm sure there's conservative Democrats and Republicans. This is an American, uh, something that we do for passports. It's something we do for driver's license. The idea of getting uh, going through some simple procedures in order to have and possess a gun is, is actually not a major restriction on somebody's freedoms or rights to own and possess a gun. It doesn't undermine it at all. And this idea that it's impractical, I mean, I remember they use these same arguments when we banned 
actually major machine guns in the country. We used to have them and they banned them and everybody said, it's impractical, it won't work. Well, guess what? Here we are years later. We see assault rifles because we haven't had an effective ban on them, but machine guns are not an issue. And nobody went out and seized the gun, the machine guns that were there. We, we can do so much more and people often bring up these tropes or they bring up this fear and they try to fear monger around the issues. This is just very basic. It's very common sense. It's what we do to keep ourselves safe at everywhere from airports to our driving mm-hmm. around this country on our highways. You mentioned assault rifles and that you want to ban them. Yeah, but I want you to didn't... go back to our assault weapons ban that we had in the past. But how would that actually work? I mean, would there be a mandatory gun buyback program where you would tell people that they have to give up their assault rifles? Again, we, we've done this, and this is why we don't need to imagine what would happen. There was not some kind of seizing of assault weapons, just like we did with machine guns. There was no seizing of the machine guns. It was saying that you couldn't sell or buy these weapons anymore. And you can do major pro- programs, like I've done when I was mayor of the city of Newark, to try to get them off the streets. And so, th- again, th- th- this is not out of the ordinary realm of what we've done before. We had an assault weapons ban that using the data showed that these weapons were being used less and were and had less. We have states that have done licensing. It's not just Connecticut. There are others as well. And they've seen gun-related violence go down dramatically. And what folks are trying to do on the other side of this argument is try to whip up all kind of fears and make it seem so challenging in order to stop us from doing the things that we know will protect our families, our communities, our churches, our mosques, our schools, our supermarkets, our But the reality is, is that if you were to be the nominee, that's exactly how it would get painted that President Trump would talk about how Senator Booker is trying to take away people's guns. And we know that that's a thing that is a thing that really excites the Republican base and right. would bring them out to vote against you. And, and those who want these common sense ideas way outnumber those that don't. And we saw in the last House elections this was one of those times that people went directly. You had people, the candidates supported by groups like Moms Demand Action and the candidates supported by the NRA. And overwhelmingly in those House elections, the people that wanted common sense gun safety won. This is an issue that we can win and we can do the things that the evidence that the data shows will dramatically drop the homicides, will deal with this epidemic in a, I think, in a very powerful way. And so let them have fear mongering. Let them try to tell lies. The truth is on our side. Most Americans support gun licensing. Most Americans support assault weapons ban. Most Americans support universal background checks. The majority of this country wants us to do the common sense things that will keep us safe. What are the other things that you've proposed that you think would help the other type of gun violence that we see in our country? And frankly, many more people die from this, which is which is what we see in streets around the country. Well, Remember, the, the, the places that have done gun licensing have seen all types of shootings go down, from domestic partner shootings they've seen go down, suicides go down, um, the, what is the most typical homicides we see, which are the kinds in communities like mine. Remember, the majority of homicide victims in this country are African-American men. And so making it difficult for a criminal, when I, when I was mayor of Newark, it used to infuriate me. Every one of our shootings, I could only find one that that was uh, ever was done by someone who had legally obtained a gun hmm. hundreds and hundreds of shootings while i was mayor we got the rates down but the reality is 
Every one of the shootings we had was done by somebody who could not legally buy a gun, but used loopholes and other means, exploiting the system we have right now to get their hands on weapons. And so if we do the common sense things that says, hey, if you are on the terrorist no-fly list, or I was just in a Mother Emanuel AME church, where that loophole was simply because a background check never came back. And after three days, hey, if your background check hasn't come back, go out and get a gun. Well, you could literally be giving a gun to somebody who intends to do a mass shooting. Why don't we close that loophole as Congressman Clyburn has proposed? New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is a Democrat running for president. About 6.30 in the morning, on Saturday morning, jail staff find Jeffrey Epstein hanging in his cell in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. He's taken to the hospital where he's later pronounced dead. He apparently uh, had killed himself. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post, and he's been reporting on the federal investigation into multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein. He has long faced allegations of sexually abusing girls dating back more than a decade. In 2008, he actually pleaded guilty to a couple of state charges to resolve allegations that he sexually abused dozens of young girls. It is largely viewed as a sweetheart plea deal. He spent 13 months in jail. And when I say spent in jail, he got out almost every day to go to work. He did not face any federal exposure for that. That was part of the leniency of the deal. But more recently, federal prosecutors in New York kind of dusted off the old case inspired by some investigative reporting on it and decided they could bring charges on very similar allegations. So he was charged in federal court in New York with sex trafficking, a federal crime, and conspiracy to commit sex trafficking that could have landed him in prison for 45 years. The allegations, though, were largely similar to what he faced back in the early 2000s, which was sexually abusing dozens of young girls, enlisting his victims to recruit new victims by paying them, kind of developing his own little personal sex trafficking ring. So tell me more about this federal jail where Jeffrey Epstein was being held. Yeah, it's uh, MCC is what it is commonly referred to as. It's a high-rise federal detention center in Manhattan um, that houses people as they await to go to trial and federal charges uh, in New York. And it has had just a parade of high-profile people through there over the years and even recently. So El Chapo, who recently went on trial in Brooklyn, was housed there because it was seen as the most secure spot for him. Paul Manafort, um, President Trump's former campaign chairman, when he has had to go up to New York for state court proceedings there, he stayed at MCC. He's not there right now. He's actually back in Pennsylvania, but he has had to stay there. Um, Bernie Madoff, you know, the the guy who orchestrated the biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history, he had to stay there. So this isn't just like a regular jail. This is a place that should be used to dealing with high-profile people. Oh, yeah. They are no stranger to having to deal with high-profile people who come through there, and they should be accustomed to to dealing with them. So we had heard that Jeffrey Epstein had made a previous attempt to take his own life last month while he was in jail. 
How is it possible that this was able to happen? Yeah. So on July 23rd, there was some type of incident in Jeffrey Epstein's cell. We're still trying to learn exactly what happened there. But what we do know is that he was found in the cell with marks around his neck. He was put on suicide watch after that, which means he's monitored essentially 24-7. He's in a special kind of cell, and he has daily psychological evaluations to determine if he needs to stay in that highly restrictive status or not. That lasts about a week, a little less than a week. And then he's taken off suicide watch. So he's put back in a a regular cell but in the special housing unit, which is for more high-profile people with some kind of special concern. He, for a time, has a cellmate there, though on Friday that cellmate is transferred away. And then 6.30 a.m. Saturday, he is found deceased. He was supposed to be getting checked on every 30 minutes. That wasn't happening at least in the several hours before he was found dead. We don't know why. We also don't know why he wasn't reassigned a cellmate as he should have been. Um, So there are just a lot of questions about how this could have happened. There was probably no more high-profile person at that prison than Jeffrey Epstein, and they just kind of lost track of him. And what have prison officials or federal prosecutors said about the fact that this was allowed to have happened? So the person who has addressed this the most is Attorney General Bill Barr. This sex trafficking case was very important to the Department of Justice and to me personally. Even just today, he said that he was appalled and angry. angry to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. The FBI and the Office of Inspector General are doing just that. We will get to the bottom of what happened, and there will be accountability. Bill Barr wants the inspector general to look into what were the policies and practices here and how were they followed or were they not followed. And these irregularities that Barr is referencing, what do is there any kind of uh, initial indication of, of what they were or why policies weren't being followed? So the why, no. The Bureau of Prisons has been almost completely silent on this. They issued a statement confirming the apparent suicide, but that has been it. The irregularities are the ones I mentioned. He should have had a cellmate. He didn't. Even when his cellmate was transferred out, they should have transferred in a new one. They didn't. They were supposed to be monitoring him every 30 minutes. They weren't. Um, There were some other irregularities with the staffing that night. So... um, he was there were two officers who were assigned to monitor the special housing unit where he was being held. Um, both of them were on overtime. One had been forced to stay. In other words, their shift was up and the management said, nope, we don't have enough people. You got to stay. The other one was there voluntarily, but was on their fourth or fifth consecutive day of overtime. So union officials have said, actually, I don't even know if you would call this an irregularity. Union officials have said, this is the norm, but this is a problem. You know, everyone there is overworked. They're tired. So maybe that is why procedures aren't being followed. But there is an idea that this particular incident could be a consequence of more endemic problems with the prison system. 
Oh, absolutely. I think some of these just point to systemic kind of failures. I mean, you see it in the officers who who are assigned to work that night. And another thing I didn't mention is that one of them didn't even normally work as a correctional officer. So everybody kind of in the prison can work as a correctional officer, but some of them have other normal roles. They're counselors, they're teachers, they work in commissary. One of these people normally wasn't a correctional officer, but because of staffing was assigned to watch this unit that included the most high-profile inmate at MCC. Um, So, yeah, there are a lot of things here. And the inspector general will try to assess that. That's what the inspector general does is look at systemic failures, you know, look at the prison system as a whole and at MCC, which seems to have unique problems. Their staffing was so bad that they were offering incentives for officers from other facilities to come work there. So now that this has happened, what happens to this criminal trial? Is it basically over? For Mr. Epstein, it is basically over. But one of the charges was a conspiracy charge, meaning there could have been other people that investigators could look at who facilitated. And the attorney general said today, as the U.S. attorney had said right when this happened, that investigation will continue. Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. So it is possible that those who conspired or allegedly conspired with Epstein could still be charged. But this moment that a lot of Epstein's alleged victims were waiting for, which was him answering for his crimes, having a trial, having a day in court, that won't happen. And who are these people who are the alleged co-conspirators? So this this is a good question. I think there's been so much focus on his high-profile friends. You know, he knows President Clinton. He knows President Trump. It's not them. You know, it's not them. These are lower-level kind of employees who worked with him, associates who worked with him. We wrote today about this woman named Ghislaine Maxwell, who was like an associate. And they're sort of accused in previous court proceedings, not most recently. None of these people are accused of crimes. But in previous civil litigation, they're accused of arranging for these young girls to come into Jeffrey Epstein's homes um, so he could abuse. Them. So that's when we're talking about co-conspirators, that's who investigators are kind of focused on. It is, of course, possible that investigation could lead to some of these high-profile people. There are allegations swirling about some of them. But when we're talking about co-conspirators, that's really not who the, the feds are focused on. And do we know anything about what will happen to Jeffrey Epstein's assets? I mean, the fact that he was a multimillionaire, there's a lot there's a lot there. This is a great question, and it's one that I don't have a conclusive answer to. I know that the victims' lawyers have told us they intend to try to get some of this money. You know, they will file civil litigation to try to get compensated. And certainly you can do that. You can sue someone's estate, and that will happen here. But it's just so tough to say. You won't get a normal process like you would have, let's say, he had been convicted. His assets could have been seized by the feds. He won't be convicted convicted now. So I imagine this will be tied up in civil court, but I'm not an estate lawyer. I'm not, I'm not super expert in that. For the people who have made these allegations against Jeffrey Epstein, is there any hope for them to get some real sense of justice? Well, I think for those who wanted to see Jeffrey Epstein face them in court, 
they will be denied that opportunity and there is great frustration among the victims and their representatives that they will be denied that opportunity. It is possible that those who helped Jeffrey Epstein uh, would be charged and they would still get a day in court that way. Perhaps some of them feel that him just finally being charged was a little bit of justice given his earlier sweetheart plea deal, but they won't get a day in court with him. There's nothing that can be done to make that occur because he's dead. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. And now, one more thing. So in the wake of two mass shootings, there was a musician named Jason Isbell who said on Twitter that he doubted there was any reason for people to own so-called assault weapons. It prompted one Twitter user from Arkansas to say, how do I kill the 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play? That subsequent back and forth just made Twitter explode with all kinds of memes that were poking fun at this guy for saying essentially, that he needed an assault weapon to protect his kids from this running mass of wild hogs. My name is Alex Horton, and I'm a general assignment reporter for The Washington Post. And even though Twitter has treated this whole feral hogs thing as a big joke, Alex took it a little more seriously. Because feral hogs actually are dangerous. They're fast, they've got tusks, and they're a very real problem in southern states. While most people on social media were talking about 30 to 50 feral hogs, there are millions more, about 6 million of them across 39 states, and they're rapidly expanding, according to the USDA. And I looked at a couple of maps from the 80s to 2018, and it looks like one of those zombie movies where they show where the infection is is growing. It's just all these counties across Texas and Arkansas and Florida that are essentially every single county is swimming with these hogs. And they carry a host of problems. They're stout. They move like tanks. They're very fast and they have sharp tusks. They carry diseases. They eat wildlife. They destroy crops. They destroy fences. They've upturned whole yards. I mean, they are a menace. And so much so that in that man's home state of Arkansas, they're declared a public nuisance. So you don't even need a permit to hunt them or to kill them. You can trap them or you can shoot them on site. And it's not just legal, but encouraged by the state. There are a few different solutions that wildlife officials and private citizens have undertaken to to combat this problem. One of which in Texas, my home state, is there is now a law where you can legally rent the side of a helicopter and shoot at feral hogs from the sky with an AR-15 style rifle or a shotgun. And in this way, there are thousands and thousands of hogs that are killed in the past 15 years or so. I think there's a disconnect between certain weapons like the AR-15 and their utility in society. People who are staunchly for gun control would say, you don't need something like this. This is only appropriate for the battlefield. And then you have ranchers and farmers say, well, they they do have a lot of utility, especially in in a stronger round that's used for hunting. It can bring one of these hogs down. So there are segments of society who use it in an appropriate and justifiable way every day. 
Alex Horton is a general assignment reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by heading to postreports.com and join in on the conversation online by using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>